Tonight, the father, writing in the first part of Proverbs, gives us his final lesson to his son. The 11th. What does he say in the final lesson? These are his urgent words, and you'll hear the urgency in his words. Last week, chapter 5, was his 8th lesson, I think it was. He gave his son the talk. You remember that? He introduced him to the idea of that there is sex, and there's bad sex, and there's good sex. Here's marriage. Marriage is for good sex. That's the message in a nutshell. A lot more to it than that. Then in chapter 6, he's going to warn his son about some crazy people. Lesson 9. Lesson 10, the middle of chapter 6, another talk on sex. And then chapter 7 tonight, the 11th and final lesson, more sex. (laughs) So of 11 lessons that the father gives his son, three of the last four are about sex. Was one talk not enough? Unfortunately, one talk is not enough. And if in that world, how much more in this world? Why all this emphasis? Because sex is everywhere. Everywhere. You can't even go on a highway without being confronted or assaulted. It's everywhere. And God cares about our sexuality. He doesn't want to squeeze it out of you. It's his gift to you. He wants it to thrive. He cares about it, so he's giving us direction. And here's the other reason why we need to hear part two of the talk from the Father. Because today, everyone carries porn in their pocket. Once upon a time, you had to go to the brothel. You had to go to the pagan temple. You had to go to the certain section of the city to find sex. Today, all you got to do is turn this on. Readily available. You can mute it too, by the way. (laughs) I really hope that wasn't a chime like, ooh, you got a new picture. (laughs) I don't know who it was, so I'm just embarrassing someone in general. I was over there, though. (laughs) Okay, so we don't need, uh, we don't live in a world where one talk will give us sexual direction. We need constant vigilance. And so I'm not going to cover chapter 6. Um, it's, it's not, not important. It's just that it, some of it, um, I think we've covered adequately last week. Um, I'll quote a verse or two, but chapter seven's where the father gives a really graphic illustration of what all of this looks like. So it's, it moves in four parts. Let's look at part one. It's the father's final plea. Verse one. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Hoard it up. Keep it in your heart. Collect it like treasure. Keep my commandments. And live. You will see in a moment that what he means by that is, if you don't keep my commandments, die. This is the father's final plea, and to him it's life or death. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye, so that your eye does not wander elsewhere. Write, uh, bind them on your fingers, so that you don't use the hand for other things. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom... Now, this is intimacy. So he's internalizing my words. Now, intimacy. Get to know my words. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. And if you do all this, verse 5 is the result. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. Okay. That's his instruction. Now the father launches into a lesson. 
where he tells a story where he watched a young lad wander on into a bad part of town. So, we're going to see in verse 6 through 13, the ferocity, or the ferocity of lust. The ferocity of lust. Watch how lust is ferocious. Verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the streets near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. The King James, by the way, talks about the crafts of the devil as wily in Ephesians 6. Gives you kind of a picture. Wily coyote. Yeah, all the tricks, right? This is, this is the uh, forbidden woman. She is loud. She is wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. She's always craving for something exciting. Um, I, I added that, by the way. She's always craving for something exciting. Verse 12. She's now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. Like a lioness, right? Lying in wait for her prey. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, okay, that's the ferocity of lust. It lies in wait. It lies in ambush. It's like a predator. You don't just accidentally stumble into lust. Like, oh, I'm living my great life, and I'm, I'm just totally a pure chap, and then all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. It's just like I was drawn, it's like when you draw cards, and oh no, the ace of spades. Oh, I fell into lust. It doesn't work like that. We like to think that that's how it works, but it doesn't work like that. Rather, lust ambushes us. Lust is prowling, it's seeking us, and it ambushes us when we are unguarded. That's how it happens. Now notice that our young lad, he has idle curiosity. And idle curiosity is the perfect limping prey for the lioness of lust. Idle curiosity is the limping prey for the lioness of lust. Check this out. There's three problems with him. Verse 7 said, I've seen among the simple. Do you remember that word simple from our first message in Proverbs? No, of course we don't. It's like two months ago. Okay, so simple in the Hebrew it means the uncommitted one, which has, which has there the meaning of, I am open-ended. I have chosen not to devote myself to the way of wisdom, to this path. I'm choosing to leave my options open. I'm uncommitted. Or, you might remember this now, we called it Peter Panism. Peter Panism, just always adolescent, never growing up, always having the freedom to be a boy, but never becoming a man or a girl and never becoming a woman. This is what the simple is in the Proverbs. And it's the ideal, it's not the ideal, but it is the actual picture of much of youth today, all the way through their 20s. The mentality of people today is that I don't grow up until I'm at least 30, and I will push it to 40 if I can, because we idolize the vigor and the freedom of youth. So that marriage is considered game over. Well, that's the simple. That's what we see first. Second, you'll also notice that there's a problem with 
his aimless wandering, his idle curiosity. In verse 8, we see that he's passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. What is he going out in the evening for? Everyone's returning home to their families to eat, to rest from a day of work. Seems like this guy is not at all tired. He's probably done nothing all day. Now he's bored. He's curious. He's idle. Hmm, I wonder what's in this part of town. I haven't been down this part of town before. Hmm, I wonder what would happen if I search, or I've heard about this website, or if I follow this person on social media. Third, we see in verse 9, it's on one hand a literal description, but on the other hand, it is very metaphorical. This all happened in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Twilight, evening, night, darkness. What in the world? Like, this isn't just literal, because if he was, if he was just trying to say it's nighttime, he could have said it's nighttime. He used like every synonym for darkness and then threw it in there to say he isn't just walking in the dark, he is living and moving into darkness itself. So that's the ferocity of lust. Lust is a lioness seeking to ambush the, the limping idle curiosity of its prey. Now, in verse 14, she speaks to him. So 14 through 20, all she says is fantasy. So now we see the fantasy of lust. The first fantasy. There are four fake fantasies that lust gives us. The first is faith. Lust wants you to think that there's somehow something okay, and somehow something spiritual and healthy for you in it, she says in verse 14. (gasps) After she kissed him, she says, I had offered, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. I am so holy. Dude, I'm a good match for you. I'm godly. In fact, I've got the meat right now in my house. It's still steaming. She's referring to the peace offering. When you bring the animal to the priest, the pre, uh, the, they set it on the altar. The fat gets burned up and goes to God in smoke, so God gets the fat. The priests then take a portion of it for their living, and then the worshiper gets the rest. And the law says that you have to eat it by the next day. So she's got the steaming plate of hot meat. And that's really tempting back then because meat was a treat. You didn't have in and out on the street corners. You didn't have chicken every night with your dinner. Meat was whenever you had a festival or made a, sac- a costly sacrifice to God. That's when you got meat. And this, this man's he's salivating. He's like, ooh, she's, she's a holy woman. And she's offering me a sacred meal. Mm, I want it. But this is a fantasy. There is nothing holy about her. Second fantasy is flattery. She want, uh, lust wants us to feel important. Lust wants us to feel wanted. So in verse 15, and this is why so many people go toward lust, it makes us feel important and wanted. Verse 15, so I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Oh, please. You just pounce upon the first stupid boy walking down the street. And she knows it. Easy prey. Does a lioness eating a limping gazelle think, oh, you're so marvelous. What a hunk of a deer. I love you. It's like, pathetic. I'll eat you up. The flattery is a fantasy. Lust wants you to feel, oh, this makes me manly or this makes me attractive or hot. Verse 3, the third fantasy is fun. You'll notice this in verse 16 to 18. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. Now, um, furniture was very costly and only the wealthy had it. She's offering him 
Luxury. This will be fun. I've got some cool toys inside. I have, perfumed, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon, also very costly because they come from other nations. Then verse 18. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Now you can use your imagination, or you can let Ray Ortland Jr. roughly translate this for you. This is what he said. He's one of the commentators I read. He says, lovemaking, this is how he loosely translates verse 18. It's lovemaking in all its forms, with every act, all night long. So she's offering him, I'll do anything you want. Well, okay, like, if you've seen it online, I can do that for you. So there's this fantasy that this is fun. And then fourth, the fourth fantasy is that this is free. Like, no one's going to know. This is freedom. Verse 19. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. So we're good. No one's going to know. No strings attached. One and done. Not going to tell. He won't walk in on us. No one will know. What about What about God? Chapter 5, the father actually warned us of that in verse 21. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. You remember Moses, who thought that he was going to do sin? In in chapter 2 of Exodus, Moses saw Egyptians beating one of the Hebrew slaves, and it says he looked left and he looked right, and then he killed the Egyptian. But Moses didn't look up, and he was caught by Pharaoh. And he was hunted out of the land. No one will know. Are you, are you sure, liar? This fantasy of freedom. Um, and by the way, if she's willing to cheat on her husband, what makes this young man think that she's not willing to rat him out? You should never trust somebody who is not loyal or faithful. And at freedom, really, what about the addictive consequences of sin? What about when this young boy cannot wait to see her again and then she refuses him or the husband's home and now he's really gotten himself into a hole? Maybe I can secretly send her love notes. What if that gets caught? Like there's never, it's never just going to be pure freedom. And so those are, that's the fantasy of lust. Now last, so the father's final instruction, the ferocity of lust, the fantasy of lust. Last is the fatality of lust. And this is verse 21 to the end. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast in the trap, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. In chapter 6, verse 27, in the previous lesson, the father had said, 627, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? He does not know that it will cost him his life. He should have known. 
24. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the Father's last words. Now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. Lust has slain. War has slain its thousands. Lust its tens of thousands. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Shul, the place of the dead, going down to the chambers of death. So the father's warning is severe. This is a matter of life and death. And maybe even of heaven and hell. What is lust? It is not necessarily the feeling of arousal for sex. That's a biological part of our creation. It's part of our body. But it is rather a disordered desire for that which we are aroused for. And pornography is one of those class A examples of disordered desire. We may not be tempted so much by the street corner girl that Proverbs 7 depicts, but we all and many people in this world have the the forbidden woman's house right here. And you don't have to go anywhere. No one has to watch you leave. It's just a few taps away. Perhaps the most uh, urgent message the Father can give us today is about our, our, our purity of heart. I mean, most people are going to, not, this is not true above everyone, but I think it's, let's say, let's talk about the church. A lot of people in the church say, I will never do that physically. The heart is far from pure. And pornography is not a problem just in the world. And the church has not um, done a very good job at preparing uh, this last generation, my generation, I'm assuming the current generation. It is such a beast. I don't know who is capable of preparing a generation. We must do our utmost best. So what is pornography? I don't remember who it is, but there's a senator who had to do like watch a film and they were trying to decide if it was pornography, legal to sell or not. And he said, I don't know what this is. I don't know if it's pornography or not, but I know pornography when I see it. It's like the infamous pornography is hard to pin down and define. Of course, legally, it's because no one wants to define it because then you actually have to start outlawing tons of money-making things and accepting others, and it's a really hard line to draw. But let's talk spiritually about our souls. What, what, is, what is pornography about? Pornography comes from two Greek words, porneia and graphos. Porneia means prostitute, and graphos means engravings. So pornography, when you put it together, it means the engravings or the writings or the drawings of a prostitute. Why would you have the writings or drawings of a prostitute? For those to purchase whom could not access a prostitute or in the place of a prostitute. And so pornography is quite literally, it's, it's a substitution for a prostitute. Matt Frad, who has a lot of great material on, on uh, lust and pornography, he says that materi- uh, pornography is material that depicts it's material that depicts erotic behavior intended to cause sexual arousal. Okay, so you're in the doctor's office, and there's the human body, the anatomy right there. You're in biology, and there it is in the book. Is that pornography? 
Probably not, because it's not intended to arouse sexual desire. But when something is made and created and produced in order to arouse that, that would be considered pornography. So, this um, actually gets very sticky now when you think about this. Because that means there are tons of television shows or movies that are not pornography themselves, but they contain moments of pornography. Because they're not just, oh, this is beautiful art. They're, we intend to arouse sexual desire in the viewer. I'm going to absolutely step on some toes here. But there is a very popular television show produced by HBO that many Christians have watched, Game of Thrones. Understandably, it's a wonderful story. I'm told. It's a wonderful storyline. It's really complex. It's fantastically well done. And there's tons of nudity and sex. There is pornography in Game of Thrones. And Christians, I've never heard a Christian talking about it embarrassed. In fact, on this platform, it wasn't at church. It was um, at a chapel at Lake Road Christian School. Um, A youth pastor stood on this platform and uh, glorified Game of Thrones that he watches it and wanted to know, like, celebrated the other kids that were into it. Last time he was ever here. That was, that was where I, I was very alarmed. Wow, we're drawing a line right there. Um, the Christian must be careful. We must be careful because we walk in a minefield. Okay, so let's, let's, let's look at some of the facts and numbers. Um, pornography's you, may, you probably know this already. It's a major problem. Uh, the industry makes $13 billion a year, and that's considering how much of it's free. So think about it. $13 billion means purchases. There's so much of it that's free. Um, in one study of a million most visited websites, over 42,000 were sex-related. In another study of the top 40 million web searches, one-eighth were for erotic content. And among 18 to 30-year-olds, do you know how many of them view porn at least several times a week? Do you want to know? 63% of men and 21% of women at least several times a week. 18 to 30-year-olds. These are the ones moving into the positions of leadership in our nation. And, once upon a time, you know who the producers were. Playboy and such, like, stay away from those. But times have changed. Pornography's become a huge market for money-making greedy people. You know who the big players are today? Time Warner, Hilton, and uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch, whom you know is the owner of Fox News. These are, these, are, these are just some examples of well-known names that are behind the industry raking profit off of it. Um, one, one fascinating insight that I read was that porn may be the closest thing we have to ancient idolatry today. And we, we're past idols. So we just kind of talk about money's an idol and these things that we worship are idols. Yes, those are idols, and that's totally worth talking about. I don't, I don't make fun of that at all. But porn is actually being used in the way that ancient idolatry was used. Ancient idolatry was about creating an image as a vehicle for the worshiper to encounter the ecstasy of the divinity. 
Porn is the creating of an image for the worshiper to encounter the divinity of the ecstasy. It's the exact same thing. But here's what we need to know for sure. Porn is not bad because the body is bad. It's not, we're not saying, oh, how terrible that people are doing this because the human body is despicable. How dare them look at it? It's actually completely the opposite. Porn is bad precisely because the human body is good. And for more on that, listen to last week's message. We talked a lot about the theology of the body. Porn is bad precisely because the body is good. Here's how Matt Frad put it. He said, the real problem with pornography isn't that it shows too much, but that it shows too little. Too little of the human person. Porn treats sex one-dimensionally by reducing people to their sexual organs and then uses them as a means to an end. As a result, porn cannot offer the experience of real intimacy that we long for. You're complete the same way that an idol is trying to reduce the god the great God who created everything into the image of creation. Porn is taking the great image of God, the human person, body, soul, and spirit that he created, ripping out soul and spirit and reducing it, not just to glorified body in Christ, but to a hunk of meat and shoving that into there. That's what idolatry always is. It's the reduction of something into something that we can consume. And that's what I, that's what pornography is. And pornography is devastatingly idolatry. So while porn is hollowing out the human body, it also simultaneously hollows out the worshiper. This is terrifying. Psalm 115 verse 8. Those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. Now Psalm 115, it makes fun of idols, says they have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, mouths but do not speak, and so forth. Then Then he says, those who worship them become like them. So you have eyes, but you do not see, ears, but you do not hear, mouths, but you do not speak. If we're worshiping the hollowed out shell of someone made in the image of God, you are becoming a hollowed out shell of someone made in the image of God. Second Kings verse 17, uh, Second Kings chapter 17 verse 15, this is the great chapter where we see why Israel was, was destroyed by the Assyrians on the northern kingdom. It says, Israel went after false idols and became false. They went after what is false, so they became false. You go after what's hollow, you become hollow. Or even better, the Hebrew, the word false there is havel. It means emptiness or vanity. They went after emptiness and vanity, they became emptiness and vanity. So, okay, that's the Bible. Here's science. Here is a scientific perspective of your brain on porn. You guys know about, well, maybe, let's all pretend we're brain scientists for a second. We all know about oxytocin and vasopressin, right? Okay, so those are neurochemicals that um, create feelings of strong attachment. So in other words, like when a mother gives birth to a child, they actually release oxytocin. And that's what gives them such a strong bond for their baby. When you have sex, you make love, oxytocin and vesopressin are both released in great quantities at the climax of your sexual encounter, but slowly before then. And so it's the same with porn. When you hit your ecstasy and your climax with porn, guess what you're doing? 
You're releasing these attachment neurochemicals into your mind, and so you can literally become boundlessly and endlessly I, I, hold on, I'm trying, as I'm reading a quote from someone, I botched that. With porn, we can become bonded to the endless novelty of pornography. You can literally, in a sense, marry yourself to porn. That's, that's, so these chemicals which God gave to us so that we unite and bond ourselves with a human person whom we hold and cherish for all of our life, you're now using that for pixels. What a reduction. Let's talk about the prefrontal cortex. It's the front part of your brain, and it is responsible for exercising control over your emotions and impulses. Why are youth and teenagers so impulsive? Because your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until you're 25. So Grace, Hunter, Tim, we give you guys lots of grace upon grace and grace upon <laughs> those impulses. Um, so it's not fully developed until you're 25, but here's what happens to your prefrontal cortex. Is that porn produces unnatural levels of dopamine, that feel-good chemical. It, it puts unnatural um, levels of dopamine into your brain, and it fatigues. Because it's an unnatural amount all at once, it fatigues your prefrontal cortex, making it corrode. The fatigue actually makes your prefrontal cortex start to corrode so that you... Um, no longer have a mature prefrontal cortex. Here, here's how Matt Frad put it. He said, the point is this. The region of the brain that, when mature, is the mark of adulthood is the very thing that is eroded when people view porn. It is as if viewing porn makes the brain revert and become more childish. Adult entertainment is actually making people more juvenile. So much for that. Terrifying. That's the reason we need this. Um, another reason is equally terrifying is what Thomas Aquinas, you guys know Thomas Aquinas? He's the great medieval saint from the 12th, 13th century. Um, he, he wrote the Summa Theologia, huge volume on theology. Um, in his writings, he wrote about the eight daughters of lust. The eight daughters are what come out of lust. So in other words, these are the eight results of lust. And, and they, they work in a progression. So you'll see how this goes. The first of the eight daughters is blindness of mind. Lust will give you blindness of mind. So I just showed you how your prefrontal cortex erodes. So you already know that you literally become blind in mind to a degree. So that you're stuck in this impulsive lifestyle so that when you get, when you get a craving for something, you can no longer control or regulate your impulse or your desire. You can't make good decisions because your prefrontal cortex is no longer operating in a mature way. That's how you become addicted and that's how you get stuck in these ruts. So it brings blindness of mind, but it also what comes with that is a development of this denial of, of, oh, this is, this isn't a bad thing. Or this is okay. Like, you can no longer quite clearly see what's so bad about something. So you'll hear people justify all the time what they're doing. Like, this isn't really that, I know maybe I shouldn't, but it isn't really that bad. Ephesians 4 tells us about how the Gentiles are moving around in, in, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened. They're alienated from God. And it says that their hearts have become hardened. The futility of their mind, hardness of heart. They, they, the Gentiles don't see where they're going. They're in darkness. The second daughter of lust is rashness. 
It's a disregard for wisdom, a disregard for counsel from others. Like chapter 5, do you remember this? Chapter 5, verse 23 last week. It said that the, he dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. So, lust will start to make you more rash, not listening to other voices. Third daughter of lust is thoughtlessness. The perverted mind forgets the laws of God. You're not focusing on them anymore. You, you conveniently forget them. Um, you'll notice how the father, in verses 1 and 2 of cha- cha- chapter 7, we're back in Proverbs, Proverbs 7, 1 and 2, he said, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. He wants it to be in your mind. But the daughter, the third daughter of lust is thoughtlessness. So which then means is that you're, you act mindlessly. You just go with the flow. Like verse 7, verse 22. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. All at once. Just, yep, oh, no thought, right? There's no battle in his mind. He's like, ah, yep, I'm in. Uh, here's what Bruce Walke said about this passage. He's not very quotable. He's more like a scholar. But every now and then he stumbles into a good quote. <laughs> he said this, Dumb animals blinded by the trap see no connection between traps and death. And morally stupid people, blinded by Satan, see no connection between sin and death. Thoughtlessness. Just go right on in. Fourth daughter of lust is inconstancy. That's, that's Aquinas' word, inconstancy. It's inconsistency with your, devi- your desires and your views. You kind of waver now. Like, maybe this is good, maybe this isn't. And sometimes, like, yeah, the better, the better side of me doesn't do this, but when I do this, this isn't the real me. It's kind of this other, like, you just kind of get very inconsistent. And then you move on to five, and this gets very scary now. Because, because the mind is breaking down, now the will is breaking down. The fifth daughter of lust is self-love. In other words, we seek pleasure over God and over neighbors. Pleasure becomes the ultimate, and that's what we seek and care about. We seek to rationalize our pleasures by inviting others to join us. This is our idea of loving others and fellowshipping with others, is come and do this with me. Or if they won't, you will find the people that already do it who accept you for doing what you're doing. And this is all because of self-love. You want to be loved and confirmed in what you have already decided to love for your own. And you'll notice this happens in things like when people start working, uh, when people refuse to work out and they think they should. <laughs> you start to demonize people who are doing good things oh those self-righteous pure prudes they don't know they don't know that they're actually hindering their self-development or as you're eating something you shouldn't from a drive-thru in a car and you're watching people jog on the side of the road like they're just so into their bodies that's what happens though when self-love we begin to demonize what we find good in others to help ourselves feel better about the crime and the crud that we're in Sixth daughter of lust is the hatred of God. Because if you're interested in your own self, God's more interested in you becoming like him, and you've decided, uh, I don't want to conform my behavior to truth. I want to conform truth to my behavior. And because God stands in the way of that, you despise what he says, and you begin to hate the fact that he is the one who said this is wrong. Seventh daughter of lust is love of the world. It's just the next step, right? 
hate God, love self, hate God, now you love the world. And the third, or, I'm sorry, the eighth, <laughs> daughter of lust, is despair of a future world. So those last two go together. Love of the world, despair of a future world. Because um, when you have trained your appetite toward the pleasures of lust, you will find the pleasures and the promises of heaven dull, boring, and cold. It's probably a good indication that someone is living a life fully given to that they shouldn't when they can't imagine heaven as anything attractive. Love of the world, daughter seven. Despair of a future world, daughter eight. Um, for example of this, you imagine um, expecting my daughter she's six and a half, to eat veggies and hummus right after she finishes a breakfast of frosted donuts. When the appetite is trained for something, the other seems, no matter how good it is, seems despicable. She does like veggies and hummus, but she will always take the donut. (laughs) But see, if you do it one right after the other, for all of us, vegetables are disgusting after you have sugar like that. But if you, if, you, if you keep the vegetables, they actually become sweet. You, people will describe carrots as sweet when you... Anyways, that's a whole other thing, though. But it, it does relate spiritually, right? Okay. So after all this, this huge problem, uh, the, the, the absolute danger... And do you see now why I say the Father is saying this isn't just life or death. This might even be the difference between heaven and hell. Do you see? Given to lust, given to pornography, given to illicit sex, it can create, you will birth these daughters in your life over time. And you will eventually desire your way out of the kingdom of heaven. Or away from it. Maybe not out of it. Let's not get into the theology. Can you lose your salvation or not? That's not my point. Um, so how then, how do we overcome this? How do we help other people overcome this? What do we say? What do we look at? What, what are some of the helps? Before I go into this, I need to make this super abundantly clear. When somebody is deeply addicted, in the sense of withdrawals, and like they are addicted to porn, um, they might need deeper help than what I'm going to offer here. This is for the person struggling, not for the person completely derailed. Okay, You might need some medical help, if that's the case, um, and an expert. But here is some prevention, and here is some help along the way. First, I want you guys to hear, though, that overcoming lust in all of its forms is possible. We are not stuck in a world that just condemns us to this life, and I can't help it. There's no way I can overcome this. The way people are dressed, or, the, or all the commercials, even when I watch Innocent Baseball, or when I am watching this, or like it's just everywhere, I can't help it. No, you can't help it. This is possible. Evagrius the Solitary fourth century solitary person. <laughs> He's, he, he said, the temptation of lust need not be permanent for intense prayer, very frugal diet, together with vigils, that's staying up all night in prayer, and the development of spiritual contemplation will drive it away like a cloud. Now that's an extreme prescription. But he says it works. It's not impossible. Because it starts, here's how it starts. It starts with humility. John Cassian, another, we've talked, we haven't quoted him before, 4th and 5th fourth and fifth century, um, he said, humility of soul helps more than anything else 
And without it, no one can overcome unchastity, lust, or any other sin. It all, all change starts with humility. It starts with the recognition that I'm not right and I need help. David O. Taylor said this, his beautiful book on the Psalms, which we had read um, a while back on Wednesday nights. He said, whatever they may be, with our secrets we hide. We hide from others. We hide from ourselves. We hide from God. In our hiding, we choose darkness over light. We embrace death instead of life. We elect to be lonely rather than to be relationally at home with others. All the ways in which Adam and Eve hid resulted in one thing, their dehumanization. The image of God gone because they hid from God. This is why humility is the first step. Humility says, I am not right. I'm coming out of the darkness and into the light. Like 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 and 10 says, if we walk in sin and don't acknowledge our sin, we are in darkness. You are not in the light of God. But when we confess our sins, it's bring, I'm paraphrasing. When we confess our sins, it brings us into the light of fellowship with God. Confession is the act of stepping from hiddenness, from darkness, into the presence and into the light of Christ. That's what confession Confession is, and that takes humility to, to come before God with honesty and to come before others with honesty. It's possible. It just requires humility. Whew, okay. So what all that means is that while porn hollows a person out, humility, confession, honesty will hallow us. To, ho- to hollow is to take the substance out of. To hallow is to pack something with substance. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is what coming before God with humility and honesty and confession will do. He will restore the devastation of our sin. Okay, so let's close with this. Thomas Aquinas, again, he had a lot to say about lust, um, wrote on four ways to overcome lust. I will share these four ways with you. Alert, this is nothing novel. The Christian faith has nothing, for thousands of years, we have nothing new to offer that's better. Everyone wants the silver bullet to heal things, right? This is, this is old-fashioned advice. The problem is that very few people have actually given Christianity a chance. So here's your chance. Here's what Thomas Aquinas says. Four ways to overcome lust, and at the very end, I'm going to add a fifth. Number one, flee external occasions. Flee external occasions. So that's like bad company, people who maybe talk about sex a lot or are actively involved in sex or look at porn or um, just, that's obvious. Flee those external occasions. Bad places, you might know that there are places that might be bad for your soul. Um, Certain stores at certain malls or um, even literal places, driving by something that might tempt you, uh, like a place that you could go inside of. Um, Triggers, triggers like television, movies, Music is so pornographic today. Uh, internet, your iPhone. If these things are triggers, if these are external occasions for lust, flee them. Give your 
make yourself have a dumb phone or something if that's one of the problems. Shut down your internet for a while or, or be very, very careful. Read reviews before you watch shows so that you don't accidentally, unknowingly stumble into something. Um, number two, do not give an opening to thoughts which occasion, which occasion lustful desires. So, okay, the, interest, the, in, the entrance of lustful thoughts is not a sin. I mean, sometimes, like, whoa, what was that? Like, you can't help that. Sometimes that's not a sin. The, the entrance of the thought, it's the entertainment of the thought, which is when we begin to spiral into sin. So Aquinas just says, look, watch the thoughts, put a gate, do not occasion their entrance. Number three, hardest one yet, but you heard it from Evagrius, the solitary already, perseverance in prayer. When I am praying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, it is impossible to lust. You can't do that and, and evoke the name of Christ. But prayer also does something else. It feeds our spirit. You might have heard this illustration before. It comes from Thomas Aquinas. He talks about two fighters, two wrestlers. If you want one to win and the other to lose, he says it's very easy. It, nothing, by the way, being cured of anything does not happen overnight. In the Christian life, it takes time and consistent practice. So this is what he says. If you want one fighter to, lose, to win and the other to lose, feed the one you want to win and starve the one you want to lose. Put puny five foot six Brandon or five seven on a good day before a worldwide wrestler. <laughs> Woo. Who's gonna win that one? Come on, be nice. Be nice. No one is putting money on me, right? Nobody. Yeah, not against the professional bulky the Hulk or something. However, if you were to starve the Hulk for months. And feed me lots of protein. I could eventually win. Might take a long time. But I could win. Prayer, Aquinas says, feeds the spirit. While fasting starves the flesh. Anyone struggling with lust, fasting is a great option. But fasting can never be alone. Fasting must always come with prayer and setting the mind. It's not just deprivation. It's the filling of something good. John Cassian says, we are told not, we're told to fast not only to mortify our body, but also to keep our intellect watchful so that it will not be obscured and because, so that it will not be secured because, obscure, sorry. So it will not be obscured because of the amount of food we have eaten and thus be unable to guard its thoughts. We must not, therefore, expend all our effort in bodily fasting. We must also give attention to our thoughts and to spiritual meditation, since otherwise we will not be able to advance to the heights of true purity and chastity. So fasting... And prayer, that's what Thomas Aquinas means by persistent prayer. Fourth, this leads right after what Cassian just said. Fourth, keep busy with wholesome occupations. Aquinas' last point, keep busy with wholesome occupations. The key word there is wholesome. What most of us do today is we distract ourselves. 
can't sleep, so we have the office on our laptop or on our television while we're doing this and maybe surfing emails or the web. Like, there's five things going on. We distract ourselves. That's not being busy with wholesome activity. I mean, actually, when you do distracting things and just kind of mind-numb yourself and just kind of soothe yourself, like, basically what you're doing is you're making yourself feel more isolated and alone and tired, and you're more prone to seek things that are exciting like lust. So keep busy with wholesome occupations. Aquinas says, the study of the scriptures is the best of all occupations. It is. That's what the father said in chapter 7, 1 through 5. He basically just said, like, look, keep my commandments. Look at them. Treasure them. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Get to be in the scriptures. These will form your mind in the right direction. Um, he then, in, in his body, where it's a very actually short piece of writing, these four uh, ways overcome lust, he then quotes St. Jerome, who was the 4th and 5th century. Um, he, he quotes him and says, Jerome says, Be always busy in doing something good, so that the devil may find you ever occupied. Isn't that great? The devil's like, I am so tired of waiting for Peter. Remember, the ferocity of lust is that lust is like a lioness crouching and waiting for the idle, the limping idle curiosity of the young man or the young woman. If, if we are doing something good, the devil will always find us occupied. Okay, now fifth the one I'm adding, it's Pentecost Sunday. We cannot ignore the great power that we have been given proceeding from the Father as Christ ascended to the right hand of God and sent to us the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit pull you into the love of God. Because what you and I crave more than anything is union. Lust is a short, cheap means to that end, union. But, le- but lust never gives it to you. What we desire is true union with another human person, body, soul, spirit, not pixels. We desire true union with the person. We were created to want this. We were, that's why even when you're single, you, just, you have friends. We were created for this union with another person. And that is but a shadow of the true union we have been called to and made for. Union with the Godhead. The Holy Spirit resurrects our fallen and dead spirit so that there is the nexus where we, body and soul, join with Father and Son through the Spirit. This is how we participate in the divine nature. This is how we have union in Christ, abiding in Him and Him abiding in us. It's the Holy Spirit that creates this union, that creates this marriage, that creates this connection, that creates this satisfaction that we've been made for and are yearning for. And so the most important thing we can do is allow the Holy Spirit to take us, to to draw us into this union with the love of God. Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5.16, I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is the means by which God unites us to himself. When his Spirit fills our soul, we become one with him, and we become satisfied, and everything else is but a pathetic shadow of what we were ultimately craving.
union. Lord God, we ask for a generous pouring of your Holy Spirit into your people. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, miserable offenders.